Thanks, Angus. Great to see you here at the public meeting of the EU. Glad you could join us today. How about I lead us in prayer as we come to reflect upon God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to hear what you have to say through your word in the Christian scriptures. We pray that you might bless us with your spirit so that we might understand it rightly and know how we ought to respond to you, the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome to your online guide to the gods. We have more gods than you can shake a stick at. Our mythology encyclopedia currently features over 2,850 deities. Browse the pantheons of the world, explore ancient myths and discover gods of everything from fertility to fluff with the fully searchable holy database of all known gods. Now featuring over 3,400 gods, goddesses, spirits, demons and saints. That's from one particular website I found this week online. Here's another one. The number of major gods recognised around the world and recorded in world history are in the hundreds, major gods, in the hundreds. The number of religions, current and past, centred on these gods is in the thousands. The number of lives lost in the attempts to advance or defend religious beliefs is in the millions. The number of humans negatively affected by this cultural anomaly is in the billions. Now, whether you agree with their judgment that the world's religious diversity is a cultural anomaly, you can sort of get their drift. There is an overabundance of gods. Mind you, this is the options generation, so we sort of like religious options, it's pretty nice, you could could have a different God every day of the week and be going for lots and lots of years. But actually, if you really care about some sort of reality with a capital R, if you want to get in touch with what's really objectively true, if you believe in such an outmoded notion, then such a diversity of religious opinion is quite disturbing. It's quite confusing. How could you possibly know which is the real God? Say we were to go out there today, just uh, wander through the main quad or down Eastern Avenue, people on the library lawn, and just say to people, okay, you know, this website said there's 2,850 deities in the world. Which is the real one and how do you know? What do you reckon the common response would be? Well, I reckon the most common response is probably something along the lines of, Well, who knows which is the right one? And I've got no idea at all about how you would tell. How can you tell a fake God from a real God? I mean, what do you do? Pick up an idol and go, oh no, look, genuine deity. That's the real deal. Will the real God please stand up? That's actually a quote from an online forum discussing the existence of God. This, This girl wrote in and said, will the real God please stand up and shake something so I know you're there? And you can sort of understand that if you want to be in contact with reality, with a capital R, if you want to know truth, with a capital T. Well, what I hope to do today is to share with you the answer to this question. Will the real God please stand up? And we're going to look at the the Christian scriptures answer to this question and we're going to do it by starting with Exodus chapter 7 to 10. 
Now, if you've been with us earlier this year, then you'll know that we've started looking at this book of Exodus, this fantastic book in the Christian Bible, and we looked at the first six chapters. Now, in case you've sort of forgotten that, because it was a whole ooh, four weeks ago, uh, or a bit longer, I guess, now, or maybe you weren't here at that time, I thought I'd just give you a quick overview. The story so far, here you go. Uh, just to orientate yourself, it's about the year 1400 BC. Right, about the year 1400 BC. What have we seen? Well, chapter 1 of Exodus, we saw the nation of Israel was stuck in Egypt. In fact, they've been stuck in Egypt for some 400 plus years. That's a long time. And we, it rattles off the tongue, 400 plus years. Just think about it. 400 plus years ago, you're looking at 16 something or late 1500s. That's a very long time to have your people, the Israelites, stuck in this other land. Egypt, cut off from the promised land, the land of Canaan. So that was chapter 1. Chapter 2, we met Moses, who we saw was a potential deliverer. He's an Israelite, grew up in Pharaoh's own household, but then, through a sequence of events, he ends up himself in exile, cut off from his people and from the promised land in this land of Midian. That was chapter 2. Chapter 3 and 4, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, reveals himself to Moses And then he sends Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. That was chapters 3 and 4. And we saw there Moses, quite possibly the most reluctant prophet ever. And then 5 and 6, we saw where Moses appeared before Pharaoh. Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go and in fact made their situation a heck of a lot worse. That was where we got to with the first six chapters. Hopefully that's just a bit of a, a jogging of your memory. Well... That introduces us actually to the main point of tension in these chapters we're looking at today, chapter 7 to 10. The big point of tension is, of course, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, has said, let my people go so that they might worship me. In fact, Moses, speaking for the Lord, will say that to Pharaoh six times in these chapters. Let my people go so they might worship me. But Pharaoh refuses to have anything to do with it. That's the sort of obvious point of tension. However, there's something deeper going on there. It's not, it's not like some sort of union negotiation with an employer. Look, uh, us plumbers, we decide we need a three-day festival to celebrate the great joys of plumbing and make sacrifice to our plumbing god. And so uh, we're coming to you as union reps to say you've got to let us go for three days. And It's not just some sort of negotiation here. This is actually a, a serious tussle to do with authority. The deeper question is, Who has the authority to say what should happen and who really should toe the line and submit? See, the Lord, the God of the Israelites, says, I'm commanding you, Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh says, not on your life. It's a question of authority. And so what that brings us to, these chapters, chapters 7 to 10, really are a showdown a power struggle between the Lord, the God of the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, You can see uh, that this point of tension is there in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5 when Moses first turned up to Pharaoh, this is what Pharaoh said in response to the Lord's command. Chapter 5 verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. 
He's recalcitrant. He refuses. He won't have a bar of it. So there we get this showdown. And uh, you might know these chapters. It's the chapters of the great plagues of Egypt. You might have seen pictures of them or I don't know if you ever were really bored one Saturday and got out Prince of Egypt and you watched it or something. I don't know. You might have seen something about the plagues of Egypt. How are the plagues related to this showdown? How do they fit together? Well, the answer is that these plagues are how the Lord, the God of the Israelites, demonstrates his reality and his power to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They're signs and wonders that the Lord is going to do to to demonstrate his reality and power. Well, um, I've divided uh, these chapters, chapter 7 to 10, up into sort of four phases. I think it sort of works like that. Um, The showdown comes in four phases and we're going to look at the first two phases of this battle today and you'll have to wait for the coming weeks to see how it ends out in phase three and four. But phase one is the bit we had read for us. Chapter seven, verses one to 13, I've called the sizing up your opponent. Phase one of this showdown, sizing up your opponent. You might remember there from the bit we had read, first thing that happens is the Lord God gives an instruction to Moses about what's going to happen. He says, let me just tell you Moses how it's all going to play out here. There's no real doubt in the Lord, God of Israel's mind, about who's going to be victorious in this showdown. He knows the answer. He says, Moses, I'll let you in on a secret. It's going to go out like this. You're going to appear before Pharaoh, he says, and then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and then I will multiply my signs and wonders, and then I'll bring my people out of Egypt in great acts of judgment. The Lord's got it all mapped out. No doubt in his mind about who's going to, who the victor will be. And in fact, as we read through it, you'll hear repeated that things happen as the Lord had said. It goes exactly as God has has, uh, decreed that it will. But having made it clear to Moses in word what the outcome will be, the Lord then makes it clear to Pharaoh in deed what the outcome will be. Remember the second part of the reading we had? Moses and Aaron turn up before Pharaoh and Aaron does this very cool thing. He takes this his staff and he throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh calls all of his magicians and they can do the same thing. All of their staffs turn into snakes. You've got to think, okay, well this showdown pretty evenly matched. Except that at that point, Aaron's staff turned snake eats all of theirs. Bit of a bummer if you're a Magician of Pharaoh that day, you've got to ring up magician supplies that afternoon. You lost your staff, what are you doing? You lost your staff. Oh man, you wouldn't believe it, you know. Some guy's staff ate mine, it was just, <laughs> just. But there's a sign for Pharaoh, right? Right in front of Pharaoh's eyes. Who's going to be the victor here? Not you, Pharaoh. Not you and your magicians. You're going to be gobbled up. That's phase one, sizing up your opponent. Very clear from the outset who the victor will be. Mind you, that doesn't dissuade Pharaoh. He's on for a fight. There's no way he's going to give in. So we come to phase two, which I've called going nine rounds with the Lord. So we're going to look at the first nine plagues here. And uh, there might not be plagues in the way we normally always use the word plague. We often say you know, a, a plague is some sort of infectious disease uh, or it might be a plague of vermin or a plague of insects. And we get some of those, but... All of the things that happen here are, are certainly 
mighty unpleasant but awesome acts of God. That's what they are. Mighty unpleasant but awesome acts of God. And they have a very typical pattern. They all sort of happen the same way. Moses and Aaron rock up to Pharaoh. They say, again, thus says the Lord, let my people go so they might worship me. If you don't do this, Pharaoh, then this terrible thing will happen. And, uh, of course, Pharaoh never relents and so that terrible thing then happens. And then Pharaoh reacts in one of two ways. Sometimes he goes, well, I don't care. Though sometimes he goes, oh, this is really bad. Um, Okay, sure, you can go. But then as soon as the terrible thing is taken away, Pharaoh changes his mind. He reneges and he refuses to let them go. And then the cycle goes around again. Nine times. Now, I'm not going to take you through all nine. Uh, It's a fantastic read and you should read it on the bus or the train on the way home today. But what I'm going to do is just sort of paint the big picture and maybe just draw out a few key things from each of the cycles, from each of the plagues, just so you get a feel for the way it develops through the cycle. So, nine rounds with the Lord. Round number one, blood. Rivers of blood. Uh, This is chapter 7, verse 14 to 25. If you've got your Bible there, great to open it up. Maybe you can share it with the person next to you so you can all just see. I'll point out a few things on the way through. Chapter 7, look at verse 17. Thus says the Lord, saying this to Pharaoh, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. See, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned to blood. The fish in the river shall die, the river itself shall stink and the Egyptians shall be unable to drink water from the Nile. And then if you just look down a bit further to verse 19, you'll see it wasn't actually just the river Nile, but every body of water in the whole land was affected, even water that was there in just a jar or in a bottle or a pot is turned to blood. Then look down a bit further, verse 22, magicians, Pharaoh's magicians have a go and somehow they manage to do the same thing. Which at one level I'm sure Pharaoh was very happy about because, well that's cool, we matched it. Another level you sort of think it would have been more useful if they turned all the blood back to water. That might have been more useful anyway. So Pharaoh doesn't listen, just as the Lord had said, and suddenly then we're up to round number two. Round number two, frogs. So this is chapter 8. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The river shall swarm with frogs. They shall come into your palace, into your bedchamber and your bed, and into the houses of your officials and of your people, and into your ovens, which has got to be the the last place you expect to find a frog in a dry oven, uh, and your kneading bowls. And so the Lord brings frogs up everywhere over the land. But again, Pharaoh's magicians, there in verse 7, are able to match it. They bring up frogs too. But it seems here Pharaoh gets more frustrated by the frogs than he did by the water turned into blood. Maybe because we read there in the first plague that if they dug next to the Nile they could get water to drink and maybe Pharaoh frankly doesn't need water. Um, Jewish commentators used to think that oh maybe he just drank wine instead. It didn't bother him too much. But man, when, you got, when you're Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and you've got frogs in your bed, that's pretty bad. You want to get rid of them. 
And so uh, he calls up Moses and Aaron and he says to them there in verse 8, Pray to the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people and I will let you people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses is very wily, very clever. Look what he says there to Pharaoh. Moses says, Kindly tell me when I am to pray for you and your officials and for your people that the frogs may be removed from you and be left only in the Nile. See, Moses, Moses has a plan here. He's not going to let the opportunity pass without making his big point. Who is the real God? Who's really in control? Look what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says, pray tomorrow. Take them away tomorrow. And Moses says, as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God, the frogs shall leave you and your houses and your officials and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And sure enough, they're taken away. But Pharaoh then reneges and he refuses to let them go. And this time the Lord doesn't wait for a warning. Once Pharaoh's reneged on his promise here, he just comes bang, straight back. No warning, no opportunity this time. Gnats. That's with a G. Gnats. Uh, pesky little things, little insects over everything. The Lord brings this plague of gnats on animals and humans alike there, chapter 8, verse 16 to 19. Uh, But this time, interestingly, when Pharaoh's magicians try to do it, they can't do it. They can't match it this time. So they come to their own conclusion. Verse 19, look at it there. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So the magicians are convinced. They're going, okay, the question's been answered. Who's the real God? This is, because we can't do this. It's the Israelite God, this Lord, Yahweh, he's the true God and this is his work. But Pharaoh uh, won't be moved. And astoundingly, I think, the Lord gives him another opportunity. Uh, Round four, flies. You may not have experienced water turned to blood. You may not have experienced plagues of frogs, though um, some places you might have. Plagues of gnats, no, but you you know about flies, right? We live in Sydney, we live in Australia, we know about flies. Can you imagine plagues of flies over everything? You can't escape it. Not so pleasant. The Lord promises swarms of flies on everyone and filling everything. The Lord stood out to make a point though. This time he introduces a distinction. Verse 22, chapter 8. The Lord says, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people live so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Thus I will make a distinction between my people and your people and this sign shall appear tomorrow. Again, the emphasis on timing. The Lord is the one who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Shows his real power. But notice here he's making a very clear point. Which is the real God? The people who got the plague of flies? Or the people who can say, you know, no flies on us. It's very clear who the real God is. It's the God of the Israelites. These are his people. And you can tell because they ain't got no flies. Well, of course, uh, when the Lord promises flies, there are flies. Again, Pharaoh um, decides to renege, though, uh, sorry, tries to relent, but he decides to negotiate this time. He knows that the original instruction from the Lord to the Israelites was you've got to go a three days journey into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, to Horeb 
and uh, come to meet the Lord there. So Pharaoh says, okay, look, these flies are so bad, you can worship God, but hey, do it here. Don't go. Let's negotiate. And Pharaoh just says, uh, Moses says, no way, no deal. Uh, we've got to go as the Lord commands. So Pharaoh gives in, the flies disappear, Pharaoh reneges, he refuses. You get the pattern by now, <laughs> having been through four. I'm not going to go through the next uh, five like that, but you get, the, you get the, the vibe. You get the pattern. What happens next? Well, round five is a death plague on all Egyptian livestock. Again, nothing touches the Israelites' flocks and herds, all the cattle and sheep, kaput. And again, the timing is emphasised to show the Lord's in control. That's round five. Round six, boils. That's a pretty picture up on the screen, isn't it? Um, boils over people and animals. That is, the, an- the Egyptian animals that didn't just die in the previous plague. That is, all the livestock is gone. This time, I guess, it's on your bunny rabbits and your Egyptian cats or whatever else there was. Camels? They're their livestock. I don't know. Whatever the other animals were, they get the boils too as well as the people. This time, Pharaoh's magicians have got so many boils, they can't even appear before Pharaoh. They're completely covered in boils. Well, round seven, then, is the mother of all thunder and hailstorms. So bad would this hailstorm be that the Lord actually warns Pharaoh, if you want anything to survive, Pharaoh, you've got to take it under cover. Because anything that's in the open, when this hailstorm comes, will die. People, animals, all the vegetation will be wiped out, the crops will be destroyed. And interestingly we read there that some of Pharaoh's officials have started to fear the word of the Lord. Not so surprising really when you think what they've been through. And so they hurry their own slaves and livestock under shelter, though others refuse to. And this hailstorm comes and it's devastating. Can you think, you think a hailstorm, really? Could you have a hailstorm that was like that? It would just kill people? It would be that big? Uh, that's a photo up there of a hailstorm that happened in the Americas uh, in 2004. A guy took that photo from, uh, you know, in his na- neighbourhood. Let me read you a little bit about the hailstorm that happened there. He says, The hail was up to tennis ball or baseball ball size. Some of the hail balls you see pictured here have already been melting for four hours before I took the picture. I have never seen anything like it. The sound was so deafening in my building I had to stop my class because we couldn't hear anything. Hail balls were bouncing off the roof of the building next door, bouncing 20 feet up in the air. It literally looked like millions of baseballs were falling from the sky at the same time landing everywhere. In the parking lot outside my building, nearly every windshield was smashed or cracked in multiple places. About half the cars had windows completely blown out and shattered. It literally looked like a war zone. Piles of broken glass everywhere. The trees' foliage covered everything. Cars were filled with ice balls and water and tree branches. People who were outside at the time had welts on their arms and heads from getting hit by hail. One was knocked out and one went to hospital bloody. Some people were pummeled with ice rocks after their windshields or sunroofs shattered while driving. The neighbour's cat was killed. I have never seen such mate... Why are you laughing? That is not actually funny. It wasn't meant to be funny. I have never seen such mayhem quite like it. And that was a hailstorm that lasted, according to him, half an hour. Half an hour. Apparently, then he quotes weather experts that say a five centimetre hail ball reaches a terminal velocity of 100 kilometres per hour when it's falling. 
and a seven and a half centimetre hail ball, which they had, its terminal velocity is 145 kilometres per hour, coming straight down at you. This hailstorm that the Lord brought destroys everything. Pharaoh again then relents. Uh, he seems even to um, repent of his hard heart, but then when the hail is ended, he reneges again. Round eight, locusts. You can see a picture there of Egypt with a swarm of locusts. Uh, round eight, locusts. The locusts come and destroy whatever is left. We notice in the hailstorm, if you read the account, that actually some of the crops that year were late coming up. So they came up after the hailstorm. The locusts come and take those as well. They just eat everything. It's not, not for no reason that the locusts were often called the destroyer of the ancient world. They just devour everything. In fact, just the, the mere threat of locusts coming had some of Pharaoh's officials saying to Pharaoh, just let them go. Can't you see that Egypt is ruined? We are living in a wasteland, Pharaoh. Let them go. Pharaoh won't do it. The locusts come, eat everything. Of course, Pharaoh then relents and wants to let them go, but then he tries to negotiate. He says, oh, look, this time when you go, you know, just your men go. You leave everybody else behind, Pharaoh. And then Moses says, no, we all go. That's what the Lord says. And he just won't do it. So the final round of this phase, round nine, darkness. The Lord then brings a darkness on the land, except, interestingly, for where the Israelites live. There's light there. Symbolic, don't you think? Darkness over the whole land of Egypt, but light where the Israelites live. It's a darkness, the text tells us, that was so thick, it sort of could be felt. It's a dense darkness. It creeps under your skin and into your mind. It's just scary. Pharaoh again tries to negotiate this time. He says, look, leave your animals behind, probably because all of his ones are dead. But Moses is not going to have a bar of it. And so we come to the end of phase two, the showdown. And this time we read there, on up to chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was unwilling to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care that you don't see my face again. Because mate, we didn't say mate, I added that. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, just as you say, I will never see your face again. And that's the end of phase two. Egypt has been reduced to an utter wasteland. His officials have pleaded with Pharaoh to give in. Pharaoh won't do it. The showdown obviously isn't over. There hasn't been a final victor here. The people haven't been let go. God's not giving up. And there's still phases three and four to come. But you'll just have to come the next two weeks to see how those unfold. Uh, let's so finish off today, though, with some reflections on what we've seen in these first two phases. First of all, let's return to our first question. Will the real God please stand up? See, why didn't Pharaoh come round? The Lord God has shown pretty definitively who the real God is, hasn't he? I mean, imagine if you were an Egyptian. You get up one day, you go to the toilet, you look in the bowl. I'm, no, they don't have bowls, it's okay. But you look in the bowl and it's blood. That's weird. You go to the fridge to pull out a jug of water and it's blood. And you go down past the river on your way, it's blood. 
the swimming pool, blood, it's all turned to blood. And then a week later, you can't get the frogs out of your living room or your laundry or your washing machine or the microwave. And then there's gnats covering your bodies and then flies. Can you just imagine going through all of that and then a darkness that could be felt for three days? Would you be in any doubt of who the real God is? When you know that the Israelite God has said, I'm going to do this and then takes it away and I'm going to do this and then takes it Would you be in any doubt? How come Pharaoh won't acknowledge the truth? Why won't he acknowledge the truth? Why didn't he come round? The answer in the text is because his heart was hardened. His heart was hardened. Who hardened his heart? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Uh, five times it's just said, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't tell you, just tells you, doesn't tell you who, it just tells you that it was. But then other times it does tell you who hardened his heart. And the really surprising thing, the really perplexing answer to who hardened his heart is the Lord did. And you can see the references there, 421, 7.3, 10.1, 10.27. Why does the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. For doesn't the Lord want his people to be let free? Doesn't he want them to come and worship him? So why is he hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let them go? Isn't he working against himself there? Well, to answer that question, you've got to look at the text, haven't you? Are there any answers here in the text? Yes, there are. So, have a look in your Bible there. Chapter 7, verse 3. Look at what the Lord says to Moses. This is in the bit we had read for us today. Chapter 7, verse 3. The Lord says to Moses, when he's saying what's going to happen, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he might do more signs and wonders. Why does he want to do more signs and wonders? Okay, flip forward to chapter 9. Flip forward to chapter 9 there, verse 14 to 16. Look at what the Lord says here to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. For this time, says the Lord to Pharaoh, I will send all my plagues upon you and upon your officials and upon your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But this is why I have let you live, to show you my power and to make my name resound through all the earth. The signs of wonders see are how the Lord is making himself known as the true God, the God of power, the God who is beyond any compare. He's making himself known though, not just to Pharaoh, but he says there, to the whole earth. He's demonstrating his reality here in these plagues, recorded for us in history, for you, for everybody, so you can know who the real God is. But notice something very perplexing about those couple of verses there in chapter 9. Notice that the Lord says he's being patient with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He says, I could have wiped you out by now and frankly that would have been a just thing because it's, a, it's a, in the height of arrogance to thumb your nose at God and say, I don't care what you think, I'll do what I... That's, the, that's immoral actually. 
So it would have been just for the Lord to wipe Pharaoh out. However, he says, I'm being patient with you so that I might show you my power. And you might go, okay, yeah, I'm following you so far. But just put some of those thoughts together. The Lord's saying, I'm going to harden your heart, Pharaoh, so that you won't listen. And then he's flipping around and going, oh, by the way, I'm being very patient with you. I could just wipe you out. Well, hang on. Like, what's he doing? Like, why is he hardening his heart? Why is he perpetuating this and then saying, oh, and I'm being patient with you? How does that work? That doesn't seem very patient. Seems to me like the Lord is almost seeming to sit on both sides of the fence at once. How's the Lord being patient if he's the one hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, part of the answer comes from noticing that in this passage, the Lord isn't the only one who does the hardening. Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. And we're told that four times, chapter 8, 15, chapter 8, 32, chapter 9, 12 and 9, 34. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Now, we're not to think here that sometimes the Lord hardened his heart and sometimes Pharaoh hardened his heart. It wasn't like they were taking turns, you know, sharing the responsibility in that way. This is happening simultaneously and genuinely. I'm trying to pick my words very carefully here. It's happening simultaneously and genuinely. That is, we have genuine dual agency here. Pharaoh genuinely hardens his heart. And he refuses to hear the real warnings from the Lord and as a consequence he's rightly and justly held responsible. And yet at the same time, without taking away from the genuineness of Pharaoh's response, at the same time the Lord is hardening his heart. Now this might seem really, frankly, like a, a set of impossible mental gymnastics. How can these both be happening at once? And a lot of Christians I talk to actually go, well look, That seems confusing what you're saying. I've actually worked it out though. Really what happens is God made the decision and Pharaoh just thought he was hardening his own heart but actually the Lord had made the decision for him. Others go, no, no, I've worked it out. It's all up to Pharaoh really. Pharaoh makes up his mind and what the Lord does is the Lord knows what Pharaoh's going to choose And so he chooses what Pharaoh will choose. Reason being, either of those options, what you've done is you've elevated one side of it and denied the other. You've either said it's all up to the Lord and Pharaoh doesn't really have a choice. Or you've said it's all up to Pharaoh and the Lord just follows Pharaoh's lead. That's not the way the text presents it. Genuine dual agency. And then you say, but Rowan, that doesn't make any sense. I understood the other options. Is Good. You're getting closer. Sometimes the things of the Lord are too wonderful for our created, puny, logically driven minds to hold together. The most we can do, I think, is we, we, we can acknowledge the Scriptures affirm this, and they affirm this, and I will not let those go. And we must not elevate one and implicitly deny the other. Now, if you want to do... Um, actually, I'll show you a quote here from uh, Jim Packer, a great Christian writer. And if you were at Ancon last year, you would have had a look at this quotation where he tries to, tries to put it on. I think he puts it really nicely. He says, As a fact of creation, 
as just an aspect of our humanness, free agency exists. But it exists as all created things do in God. But how God sustains that free agency, how he even overrules that free agency without overriding it, without dismissing it, that is his secret. But that he does so, that he does sustain it and overrule it without overriding it, that he does that is certain because the scriptures testify to it. Now, if you want to delve further into the way the Christian scriptures uh, explore this issue, can I recommend to you uh, reading Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 16 to 24, which we're not going to do now. But actually, as Paul's reflecting on the ways of God and how he shows mercy to whom he wants to show mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden, he turns to Exodus chapter 9 and he reflects on Pharaoh. And I think actually... That whole section there of chapter 9, 16 to 24 is a reflection on what the Lord says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, those verses we looked at. But if you want to pick that up and explore that with me later, I'd love to talk to you after uh, or over afternoon tea. So let me just uh, turn our last few minutes to this last heading, responding to the true God. I want to think then about Pharaoh's genuine response to the Lord. He hardened his heart. He refused to listen to what the Lord was saying. He he refused to acknowledge that this Lord, Yahweh, God of Israelites, is the true God, despite all these amazing signs. Now, I know that you and I haven't lived through those signs of the Exodus. But I want to say to you, I actually think there's actually not a lot of distance between Pharaoh and the people you will sit next to in lectures or tutes this afternoon. There's not a big difference really between Pharaoh and the people currently sitting outside the main quad or studying away frantically in Fisher Library. There's not a big difference. Why is that? Well, remember, when the Lord did these amazing events in the Exodus, he said, this is so that you, Pharaoh, might know my power and so that my name might resound through all the earth. The Lord, the God of the Israelites, is still proclaiming his reality through the record of those events to this world today. But, oh, now this is fantastic. It's even better than that. Because the same Lord, the same God, who is the one true God, who is God today, he's done something else to show his power to show his reality to the whole world. He raised a bloke from the grave. He brought Jesus of Nazareth back to life again after being dead for three days. Didn't just bring him back to a sort of a, his old life, brought him back to a transformed, new, immortal life. The resurrection of Jesus is a sign of God's reality and power that far surpasses even those astounding things in Exodus. That's how God proclaims his reality and power to the whole world. If you want to get a grip on that, have a look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and let me just read it out to you, verses 29 to 31. And we'll finish with this. Paul here is in Athens. Athens was a city full of idols, full of gods, And Paul is distressed by it and he wants to proclaim the true God. And so he says this, he says, Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art or imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know what's God's calling card? The resurrection of Jesus. That's the true God's calling card. Will the real God stand up? The real God has stood someone up. He stood up Jesus of Nazareth and gave him new life. And the call to all is the same as it was to Pharaoh. Acknowledge the true God. That acknowledgement can't be those sort of weak-willed sort of acknowledgement that Pharaoh gave. Oh, I've sinned and the Lord is right. Take away my terrible situation and I'll let your people go. Takes away the terrible situation. Ah, forget it now. I'm over that. There's a moment of weakness. That's not the sort of acknowledgement we're talking about. Real acknowledgement of the real God is obedience to his word. It's faith. It's trust. May I just say, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, the true God has shown his reality to all the world by raising Jesus from the dead. And and you need to consider that and ponder that. Because he's calling, commanding everyone to repent. Just like he commanded Pharaoh. If you are a Christian believer, then know that this is a world in darkness. It's a world that's asking this question, who is the real God? And that as a Christian person, you have a message to proclaim, don't you? You've got an answer to that question. The real God is the God who raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. And now he commands everyone to repent and put their trust in him. Why don't we pray now and ask that God might make his reality known in people's lives through his spirit so they might know all that he's done for them in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might graciously bring us deeper into this understanding of your power and your reality, that we might be obedient to you, that we might follow you, that we might repent from all the gods that we have installed in our own life, be it money or career or family or pleasure or popularity, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would help us to repent of it and to entrust ourselves to you, the one true God, who's raised Jesus from the dead. We pray that you might make yourself known through the proclamation of this message to this university and all those who are lost in darkness without you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.